You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to another episode of the Family Feud Podcast. I'm your host, Keely Yor, joined by Shotgun Spratling. We're back on a short week. You and I made the trip to Provo, Utah, Shotgun. It's a busy week. But we're back with another podcast looking at the Utah matchup in the Coliseum on Friday. USC coming off a 30-27 to overtime loss to the Cougars. We'll break all of that down. But before we do, as a reminder, you guys can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Megaphone. You can also email us questions or submissions to our podcast at familyfeudpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. A couple people left us voicemails. Thank you very much. We'll get to that later in the show. But Shotgun, last week we had a lot of stock up. I'm not sure how it's going to go this week. Let's start off. Stock up. Who you got? Well, I'm going to start with Michael Pittman Jr. getting into the end zone twice. Uh, you know, he had a couple of opportunities to have touchdowns in the first couple of games of the season against Stanford. You know, he had a touchdown. He caught a ball. He's out of bounds against Fresno State. He had a touchdown over the middle that was called back because of penalty. This time he gets in a couple of times, you know, and the, the second touchdown takes about six or seven extra minutes of the referees going over it. They actually, it seemed to that they made, they did a review of the play because I saw the head referee on his headset, on his earpiece, listening from upstairs before they actually made a call and a determination on whether it was even a catch or a touchdown or any, they didn't really know. And then they eventually reviewed it after that too. There was just a lot of reviews in this game to begin with, but Michael Pittman gets the touchdown on that one. I thought he had a really good game. Uh, I, I think that he's a big play weapon that they got to make sure that they involve in the offense. And, you know, catches like the one over uh, Diane Guan, Guanwoluku, I think it was. Uh, <laughs> nice try, A for effort. He ends up getting the uh, – he had a touchdown early in the game as a running back, and then he had the interception at the end to finish the game off. So he's actually on stock up too, you could say. Wow, true. Um, because he had a pretty big game all around. But he, he was at uh, that touchdown to Michael Pittman. But that's the type of play that Pittman can make. You know, if you're, you're struggling to get those short passes going, sometimes you just got to throw it up and let, let a, a guy like Michael Pittman go do what he does. True. I was surprised by Michael Pittman getting his first touchdown in week three, but he did have some pseudo touchdowns Mm -hmm. prior, so I guess it evens itself out. I had Marquis Step on stock up, 53 yards on nine carries. Now, Shotgun, you pointed this out on our film study that's actually out. USC did some things to help out Step's uh, running ability. They pulled a guard and put an H back there to kind of lead block clear the way for him so that was successful in that sense but stock up for Marquis Step maybe in the fans eyes but not for running backs coach Mike Jinks I mean <laughs> he likes Marquis Step but when we asked him about you know will Step get more playing time he was like I'm not about that noise he seems very intent on going with Vi Malapai and Stephen Carr so interesting to see if they'll go to Marquis Step more in the future or if they're kind of going to use him in a more limited role I thought they did a nice job of making an adjustment and deciding to go more downhill and that's what Marquis Step does better than the other two guys which is when you put him in the game I thought it was a great addition to throw in there because of the way the game plan kind of adjusted in the middle of the game you know them pulling the guard and the H back at the same time was something that they didn't do until I believe the second quarter so that was an in-game adjustment and you saw success with both Vi and with with Marquis Step running that way so I, I big ups to the the coaching staff for making adjustments something that We've been wondering about for a while uh, with the coaching staff, but I thought they did a good job there, and I thought it was a great place to put him in. I think that's where he fits when you need a downhill runner. Use him in that. You, you need that fourth and one, not his first carry of the game like the Fresno State game, but when he's been in the game and been in a little bit, I think that was a, a great 
great job using him in this game. I also have Pallier and Itiote uh, on uh, my stock up. I thought he had his best game. You know, the misdirections, he was playing much better. You know, he was attacking and being able to make plays in the backfield as well. He had one and a half tackles for loss, including a big one on third down, and then forcing the fourth down play that USC gets the, the double stop, basically, after the referees again. Had some weird stuff go on. They had to give USC a timeout back. They had stopped to play when Talanoa Hufunga nearly decapitated a kid. Uh, you know, and then they basically they run the same exact play again. Interesting, interesting choice there, BYU. Uh, but USC stops it a second time, gets the fourth down stop, which gave them some momentum there late in the third quarter. Um, but I, I think I thought EA was flying around, and that's a that's a really good sign for USC because he's a big playmaker, can be a big playmaker, can create turnovers if he's attacking and you know making tackles, and that's what I thought he was doing in this game. The interesting thing about EA to remember is he only had a handful of starts coming into this season, so it's still kind of a learning process for him, even though there's such high expectations for him. But I actually had Chase McGrath on my stock up. Always interesting to put some special teams guys up there. He had a career-long 52-yard field goal to tie the game in the fourth quarter. The interesting, I didn't have this on my heard on the sideline but an interesting thing that I noticed was when the mayhem kind of happened after the the third and final interception and they were trying to review the play amidst all the BYU fans kind of freaking out and whatnot in the sea of blue is this white uh, and gold figure it's Chase McGrath standing out there in the field warming up his leg getting ready to kick for what he thought was going to be uh the game tying kick so the confidence by Chase there but he didn't end up getting that kick that's very interesting because what happens if a fan runs into him you know what if you have a, a similar situation or kind of the opposite of that situation that happened in Washington State where a USC player bowled over a, a kid uh you know what if someone comes and runs and hits Chase and he had a space he had a little space around him. if I'm him I'm letting them hit me and I'm going down I'm fake I'm pulling a soccer you know injury you know a I'm flop. Try, yeah I'm flopping I'm trying to get a 15 yard penalty or whatever because you you gotta wonder if they decide, you know, because they reviewed the final interception to see, and I actually think that the, the tip of the ball was hitting the ground. I didn't think he had control of it, so I thought it was an incompletion. But if they do rule it that way, does BYU then get penalized 15 yards I was for really people running yeah. on the field? I kind of wanted it to happen just to see, you know, what would happen and, you know, all the fans being upset because they – because then that – that's a first down. Yep. You, know, you go from third and six, okay, we need to kick a field goal to, hey, we're now inside the, the 10 yard or at the 10 yard line, basically. So that would be a huge swing of, of momentum there. Um, so, you know, that would have been really, which is why I wanted to see it happen, just because I'm, I'm always interested in what, the, the, the craziness oddity. that yeah. can happen in, in college football. Uh, but yeah, you could, could have that, had that happen there. I actually, on my stock up, my last stock up, because there weren't too many in this game. <laughs> But I got a couple of backups that stepped in and did a pretty good job. I thought C.J. Pollard, you know, when he came in, he played pretty well. He, he was uh, helping out at the line of scrimmage. He, you know, made a couple of tackles. He had a on the third down play when they were in the red zone. He he helped with John Houston to make the tackle to force a field goal. I also had Hunter Eccles. You know, he actually took over as the starting defensive end opposite of Drake Jackson in the second half. Connor Murphy kind of got demoted a little bit. Uh, Connor Mur- Hunter Eccles did have a sack in the game, so you know, getting in there just being boosted up the depth chart that's a that's always a, a little bit of a stock up there even though I didn't think he was great the rest of the game I thought the defensive line they got tired a lot you know just the the whole group as a whole you know, there were, I think the altitude really played a factor with them you know it seemed like they were fatigued at times 
though Jay Tavelle and Marlon Tuipiloto give those guys credit, there were a couple plays where those guys were sprinting from the, hustle. you know their their Major inside hustle. position all the way to the sideline to help out with plays, including the last scramble from Zach Wilson in regulation where Marlon Tuipiloto basically hits him right at the line and stops him, or else. You know, that last drive, they had probably, what, a minute left or, you know, a little bit less than a minute and all the momentum there. And they've been really, you know, pushing on that USC defense. So I think that, you know, I thought, actually, I think I told you before the drive, I was like, if they don't get a sack on this play, which they got a 15-yard penalty, which worked as a sack. But I was like, I think they'll end up scoring and winning the game on that final drive. Instead, Martin Tulipolotu hustling out to the outside and uh, helps make a tackle right at the line to gain and, and keeps them from, from being able to pick up a first down. Now, my final stock up was for Eric Cromenhook, actually. A 60-yard catch. Someone asked me, did he look as as slow in person as he did on the broadcast? So I didn't understand that until I watched the broadcast, and I was like, oh, he does kind of look slow. Uh, But he was was going full effort on that catch. Uh, Didn't quite make it in the end zone, but good catch by him. Slipped by the defender. I also like he's just been doing well blocking uh, the Mm -hmm. past couple games, and I think that's that's actually important given how much we harped on that last year and how much that was a problem for USC in 2018. So... Props to Eric Cromenhook. Stock up for him. Yeah, it was obviously a different game plan with, you know, against Stanford. It was a lot of four wide receivers, not as much this game. You know, they didn't go four wide nearly as much, and they didn't use four receivers. When they did go four wide, it was actually Cromenhook who was splitting out. So, yeah, I thought he had a great game, and there was a big catch right there. Got him down inside. You, you know, wish you'd get that extra five yards out of him because it ends up in an NA field goal. But also a great throw from Keaton Slovis on that. Great job of squaring his shoulders up and making the throw. Uh, he had some other options earlier in it, but you guys can check that out in film study. Yep, we keep hyping this film study. <laughs> uh, moving on, I shotgun much to your chagrin. I know you're so sad about this. I don't have stock neutral this week, so we can move on to stock down. Who you got? Stock down. Let's start with Isaiah Polamau and just the tackling in general. I think uh, just Isaiah Polamau. There's a couple opportunities where he doesn't make a tackle. There's a couple opportunities where he makes the tackle, but he gives up three or four on one play, eight extra yards as he's making the tackle, you know, you need him to come downhill and be able to stop guys where they're at instead of giving up those extra yards. There was a third down play where he had an opportunity to hit a guy in the hole. We kind of waited on it. Um, so I, I think that he didn't have a great game. Also, the, the tackling in general, and that's going to be a big question mark coming mm-hmm. this weekend with, with Zach Moss coming into town and a guy that just lives on yards after contact. So we'll see how what USC does. I'm not really – I'm not really expecting them to make any vast improvements. It's not like we, we've heard them talk about, hey, yeah, we've been doing this different or this different. If they have, we haven't been hearing about it. So I, I'm expecting that there's still going to be some tackling woes against Utah. And if that's the case, that could be a, a very dangerous for USC uh, taking on Zach Moss and Tyler Huntley. Without a doubt. I had tackling on my stock down as well. Um, I asked Dan on instant analysis, how can you expect a different result with tackling if you're not doing anything different in practice? And it's not what we heard from coaches or players. They're doing the same thing. It's the definition of insanity. And so some of the coaches branded it as it's the early season woes. Tackling will progress as the season progresses. But given what we've seen from Clay Helton teams, we don't see that ever come to fruition. So I just had tackling on my stock down. I also was just... I put a little note that assignment sound. I don't feel like some guys know their assignments all the time. And so I feel like there's a disconnect there. And sometimes I just feel like the defense as a whole needs to play better as a cohesive unit. I I think that you're completely correct on that. The same with my next stock down, which is offensive line. You know, I think that they had their stock had definitely risen after the first two games, but I think it dropped off a little bit here. I think it was down because, you know, they weren't getting to the second level and getting some of those blocks and they struggled up front with the nose tackles there. Actually, let me just look at my stock up from last week. 
where I had Brett Elon, Drake London, Connor Murphy, and Keaton Slovis were four of mine. And I, you kind of could put all four of those guys in the stock down. I mean, obviously, Slovis throwing three interception. Connor Murphy kind of gets demoted to the second string after starting the game. Drake London, has a, he says that he took blame for it. I wouldn't blame him for the last one, but that ball hits him in the hands. But also just the, the lack of use, use there in this game plan. And Brett Elon obviously struggled with their nose tackles. So a lot of guys that were on the way up against Stanford took a step back this week. So uh, four of my guys from there, you probably could put on stock down as well. You Pretty much just said most of the stock down I had. I had USC's offensive line. Wasn't a good showing for Brett Nealon. He was the first to admit that. It makes you concerned about this group going into a tough matchup with Utah. This defensive line is experienced. They're going to be tough. Can USC's offensive line step up? It's the key to the game. It's the key to the success of the season. Shotgun, I know you said it ad nauseum. I also had Keaton Slovis on stock down. Kind of returning back to earth, you know, freshman mistakes. Uh, We talked about it last week. Can he make his progressions well? Something he struggled with. Uh, He said at times he he guessed what the read would develop into. And so it's like, you know, that's something Graham Harrell is coaching him through. And so that's going to happen with growing pains. But I think part of the reason why people were so disappointed in in Keaton was because he set the bar so high for himself Mm -hmm. just the week earlier. So it's kind of hard for him just to kind of balance out the scales there. But I had those two on my stock down. Another thing I had on stock down officiating, which we kind of already said a lot. Shotgun, you had complained about a lot. But when we were doing our film study, I turned to Shotgun and I said, what's the point of playing the game if you're not going to get any of the calls right? It's just that just frustrates me so much because if you're not getting things right, it just taints the game. Now, I'm not going to say that it caused USC to lose. I think USC is far more talented uh, for it to come down to certain officiating things, and that's what Gerard Martinez tweeted, and I completely agree with it. But it just bothers me when the officials can't do their job. Yeah, I'm not even saying that USC got all the calls or anything or all the calls went against USC. It's just there was a lot of things that were not called, especially holding on the Across offensive the line. Across the board, yes. There was, just, there was a lot of times where you can see shoulder pads of players. Just a lot of uh, particularly holding. They were just, just didn't seem to be called rarely ever. And there were it ended up being impactful to USC because there were certain plays where, for example, Drake Jackson sacks – Zach Wilson and the ball comes flying out of his hands and Caleb Tremblay could be the first guy there but you see his jersey is being pulled as he's trying to pull away from the offensive lineman you see there's a full like pull of the jersey and he's set backwards you know he kind of you know takes a step back kind of and he ends up diving for the ball the offensive lineman ends up getting it instead of him if he has that extra half a second does he potentially pick up the ball does he potentially scoop and score even I mean that's a huge momentum swing when you go into an overtime game and there are just small things like that that ended up being consequential for USC when there were small things you know holdings and stuff against BYU it didn't seem to have as much impact it did, there weren't impact plays so it stood out a little bit more for USC but there were just things that you looked at it and like why why is that not being called the the pass interference on Michael Pittman that's Wow, that was I didn't a, understand that's a that. terrible call. Yep. I mean, it is technically a push off, but it's because he's being held. So that that's the things you allow uh, the offensive player to get away with uh, to be able to fend for himself. And then you call the defensive pass interference because after that, after he gets rid of the guy holding him, then the guy trips him. So the, the play should have been not necessarily on the holding, not necessarily on the push, but on the trip. That should have been the pass interference, and USC would have had 15 yards, and maybe they'd try to be more aggressive at the end of the game. You know, they were pretty conservative at the end of the game, but that's what you're going to do when you're backed up and it's, you know, first and 20 or first and 25, whatever it was. Yep. So 
That's why you took it for me, Shotgun, but that's why I had officiating on Stock Down. I completely agree with you on that one. And then the final thing I had on Stock Down, not fully convinced about this, but I was I thought the play calling could have been better on Graham Harrell's part. Granted, your hands are kind of tied when your quarterback throws three interceptions and uh, your offensive line can't get it done. But I just think there's little things that you can do to adjust, and I just didn't think that it was something just didn't have the same oomph to me. And maybe that's because you can't get any push on the line, but I don't know. I We got a question about this, and I think that's why I'm mincing my words, because we got a question about the overtime play calling, and that's where I actually did have problems with. But I'll get to that later when we had that question. But I had play calling on my kind of stock down, so there you go. <laughs> uh, I should point out with the offensive line, outside of the nose tackle, they did a pretty good job as far as blocking on the on the line of scrimmage. You know, they were able to get some push. You know, they were able to get around guys, but they just weren't able to, when they would have an eight-yard gain, they would get four. And that was because they weren't getting to the second level and holding that those blocks. They didn't do a great job of holding their blocks better, I think. Um, so they, there weren't many you know tackles for loss from BYU or anything. But the nose tackle really disrupted a lot of plays. You know, you, you look at Tonga; he ends up, I think, with one tackle and one you know, pass deflection. But it just seemed like he was in the backfield all the time, pushing Brett Nealon back to the feet of Keaton Slovis as he was throwing which happened on the, you know, the second interception, and also just forcing the running backs to have to take wider wider pass and stuff. And I think when that happens, I think Keaton got a little jumpy. I think he tried to make his reads faster because he wasn't sure how much time he would have. And so it's just a ca- cascading effect where you don't know how much, okay, yeah, the offensive line, maybe the tackles did well, but if Brett Nealon can't handle the guy in front of him, it affects everything else. So maybe it's not fair to include the whole offensive line, but – it was a problem. And that's the thing. When a guy like Tonga hits you, you know, he's a 320, 330-pound guy, and he hits Slovis and got a sack on him, and I think hit him in the face, actually, on the play, it looked like. Yeah. And so when that happens, you have that big guy falling on you. It's a little bit different than high school you take a sack. You know, you have a 230-pound defensive end versus a 330-pound defensive tackle, and that's what we saw last year with JT Daniels when he struggled in that, Stanford. In that Stanford game when he got beat up. When you beat up a freshman quarterback because it's a new experience to him, especially early in the season, then I think it creates a mental hurdle as well that they have to then get over. And I think Keaton Slovis will, but I, did, I think that that's when he became a little bit more hesitant in that game. It's a great observation. Why, thank you. Well, let's move on to Heard It on the Sideline, shall we? What do you got? Let's start with uh, Clay Helton 2, Keaton Slovis on the sideline. I think after after the first interception, he's like, let's go. we got a lot of ball play left to play. And that's that was true. And that's you got to pump the guy back up, you know, especially after those first two early ones. It seemed like they kind of went away from passing. I mean, obviously, the third in the third quarter, they only ran 10 plays. But when only 10% of your plays are pass plays, even regardless of how many plays it is, that tells you that you, you're not fully confident in your quarterback to go out there and make plays for you. And they were able to run the ball, and that actually opened up some throws later. But, you know, I think it, they, they took a little confidence away from him, but they were trying to boost him up on the sideline. That was kind of interesting to see, you know, that Helton's constantly trying to, to be that guy for Keaton Slovis as well. My heard it is felt it on the sideline. I was actually not prepared for the heat and the altitude. It was something that I just was not expecting. And so I, it was hot. I just felt like someone was like pushing on my lungs, if that makes sense. It was just the altitude. It, it gets to you. And Brett Nealon talked to Chris Trevino about how his mouth was pretty dry the whole game. And then shotgun, when you and I heard it, we were turned to each other like us too. It was just, it was not a fun experience. I've kind of the folklore of what we talk about of past games the Arizona game where my shoes melted on the turf I rank it like I rank this BYU game right below it because it was hot but 
so we heard from Brett Nealon, but I was also on the sideline. And in the fourth quarter, Drake Jackson was getting a lot of attention from trainers. They were putting ice on him. They were putting a cold like compress on him. And a trainer asked him after a little bit, are you good? And Drake goes, I can't feel my legs. I just can't feel them. And so I think the altitude, I know people are like, it doesn't matter. You should be trained. I think there was a real effect on this team. And, and, and I was thinking when this game went into overtime, this is the last game USC would want to go into overtime because this team was just gassed and they were not prepared for the element elements that they had to face yeah and you the BYU went with tempo at one point because I think they sensed that the USC defense was tired you talk about Drake Jackson you know he played 29 snaps in the first half he played the first I think seven snaps of the second half on defense and then he only played you know maybe 10 more the rest of the game you know so I think that there was something going on there with him they did play in the overtime and he came back late in the game and and played a full drive on the the touchdown drive they had but you know he was in there sparingly in the second half which tells you that they were having to go to their you know, B team basically on the defensive ends, on the outside edges, because you didn't have Christian Rector in the game. You didn't have Drake Jackson for part of that second half. So I think that had an impact on their ability to get to the quarterback. And, you know, you start the game with uh, Zach Wilson getting going four of 15 on throws over three yards. He finishes seven of nine on, you know, in the last four or five drives of the game. And I think that's part of it because he's having more time, being able to be a little bit more comfortable back there and wait on his targets because you didn't have the same type of pressure in the second half. I mean, you look at Drake Jackson, the first, you know, a few snaps of the second half, you know, he throws, he, he gets a deflection and then he throws uh, Wilson around and for a, for a sack fumble. So when you don't have guys like that, guys can get to the quarterback consistently. Now give Hunter Eccles credit. He did have a sack, but you know, that was about the only pressure and that was a clean shot, you know, from the backside where Wilson didn't have a chance to see him whereas I don't know how he saw Brandon Peely on the one play where he pulled Houdini and just spun away from him and Peely's like kill shot kill shot whoa where'd he go (laughs) yeah this is a good observation though what else you got on heard it you know talking with Clay Helton uh you know on after the game and on the Sunday conference call and they made a play one more play than us yeah it's it's I don't really like that you know neither did I you're a more athletic team yeah, at the end, they made the final play. You could say that. They made more plays than you as a whole. You know, they, they made you had three interceptions that set their offense up. You know, they made some great catches. You know, the linebackers made great catches on the interceptions. You know, there were diving catches. They made more plays than you. They were more into the game. They out – it just never – there was nothing in this game where you point at and be like, yeah – USC did really well in this area. It just seemed like every area they were just a little bit better than you. And that's that shouldn't happen when you're the, you know, more talented team, the more athletic team. You shouldn't be like they were a little bit better running the ball, a little bit better throwing the ball, a little bit better on defense, they tackle a little bit better. You know, just every little thing. There was no like glaring issue like just oh my besides the turnovers and you could say that you'd be like you can you can point at the three turnovers and say hey, that's the reason they lost the game. But other than that, it, and even that is still you know, the defense held on, you know, they held them to 10 points there and kept them in the game. But there was no area where it was like, they're just getting destroyed here, and that's why they lost this game. Yeah. So it was just a small, you know, it was the death by a thousand cuts type of thing for, for USC on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of that saying either because to me it implies that if you did make that play, if you did win and, and make one more play than BYU did, then you're fine with how you played in that game. There were no corrections needed to be made. And I think even if they win this game, there's a lot of corrections. There's a lot of things that need to be fixed coming out of this game. So to me, I just felt like it gave a a weird uh, signal about the performance that USC gave on Saturday. Um, The other hurt I had was 
stock neutral fans, the nation is out there, Shotgun. They had a strong presence in Utah. So shouts to all the stock neutral fans who came out strong. I went to the Reina Troy meetup. At one point, they all started shouting stock neutral. Anyway, and then on the sideline, someone was trying to explain to you what stock neutral was. And someone managed to grab a picture of you looking very frustrated and me looking very excited. So shouts to... You're always giddy. (laughs) Giddy. Giddy. Giddy's my middle name, but shouts to everyone who said hi to us on the sideline and in the stadium. We appreciate meeting you, so thanks for that. You have like 14 middle names. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, my last heard it was Tim Drevno uh, this week when I talked to him uh, about Brett Nelon, actually. And he said, you know, I, I asked him, I was like, how much of a challenge is it when you have a, you know, a head-up nose tackle, especially a guy as big as, as uh, Tonga was, and the fact that he's going to face a couple guys that are huge this week, you know, in, in Fotu and uh, Pinacini those guys on, on the defensive line for Utah. And he said, you know, I was like, especially because he's a young center. He hasn't played much is, was my thought process. I don't, I don't consider Brett a young center. He, he's a very smart, very smart player. He's a good football player. You know, it's hard. You got to snap the ball. You got a 330, 340, 350 pound man in your face. That's a hard job. I mean, to me, it's the second hardest job on the team besides playing quarterback position on the offensive side of the ball. So that's a hard challenge. So do you give Brett Nealon a little slack for what was happening? I thought maybe you, you try to help him out a little bit and do some double teams. Now, now Brett said that he told Chris Trevino that, yeah, that's something they made an adjustment to in the second half, and Tim Drevno thought that he played much better in the second half. I thought there were still some issues there. But I, I wonder what you're going to do this next game. Now, he won't have a head-up nose tackle necessarily. Now, maybe Utah makes some adjustments after seeing how well it worked for BYU, but they usually run with a four down down lineman front, so that would mean he's not directly over the center rather than over a guard or on the outside shoulder of a center. So we'll see if they make adjustments there, but if they do put someone over, how does USC react to it? Do they continue to put Brett Nealon in a single you know, man-to-man, or do they try to help him out a little bit, and what, do you, what can you do there to help out with some combo blocks and stuff? Yeah, I'm really curious to see how that battle uh, pans out there. I have two more Hurdits. First up, the practice sideline. We saw the return of Brew McCoy. It was good to see him out there Ooh, uh, doing point. some warm-ups, uh, went in to do some rehabbing and some running in the McKay Center. Uh, he looks a little bit skinnier just because he's been hasn't been doing the workouts, but Clay Helson said that his fevers are gone, which is good. I know that's something that they were concerned about because it's been happening for a while. So glad to see Brew McCoy on the men there. And then my final herd on the sideline is a future herd on the sideline. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen on Friday. The Fox pregame and postgame show going to be on the field. Matt Leinert, Reggie Bush returns to the Coliseum, and Urban Meyer. First off, are USC fans going to cheer more for Reggie, for Urban? How's that going to go down? Are they going to put Reggie on the screen? Can they put Reggie on the screen? What's happening? Will it be awkward if USC gets boat raced? Are fans cheering for Urban, who happens to be in the Coliseum? What's going to happen? I don't know. It's intriguing. <laughs> drama. So <laughs> much drama. Yeah. So, so officially, uh, what USC said is that because Reggie is in a working capacity, he is allowed to be in the Coliseum. I wonder if it's partly because the Coliseum is technically not campus, if that helps out to an extent for that. But does that mean he can give a pregame speech? Uh, is he down in the field hyping up some players? Or, I mean, he's a media member now, so he's supposed to stay neutral. Could he do a light jog coming out of the tunnel? Yeah, you know he's got to, you know, he's gonna, he needs to walk into the stadium regardless, right? Yeah, so he right? might as well just do it right before the players. Just time it, time <laughs> it well. That's all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it should be interesting to see, you know, both Liner and Reggie back together. I think Matt Liner's eyes are gonna light up, you know, having being there with Reggie. 
Um, and then just to see how he reacts to being back there, that's yeah. going to be fun. And then obviously there is the possibility that you know we hear some we want Urban chants or we want Reggie chants or we want both chants <laughs> <laughs> type of thing. I don't know exactly what it'll be, but it'll be, depend on how USC is looking as to you know what kind of attention I think is paid to Urban Meyer. I think there'll be attention pregame and stuff, but whether there starts to be chants or stuff, uh, yeah. you never know. It'll be interesting to see for sure. All right, let's move on to agree, disagree. Shotgun, I'm bringing the heat this week oh with gosh. this segment, so buckle up. I'm cold. <laughs> the heat is coming. Um, all righty, first up, losing to BYU is the beginning of the end for the Clay Helton era. Oh, Yeah, man. I told you. I warned you. I think so because I can answer this two different ways. I think it is because it's going to be a really tough stretch. I don't think they go two and one in the stretch. I think it takes two and one to say, hey, this team's heading in the right direction against uh, Utah, Washington, and Notre Dame the next three games. But also, there's no athletic director, so it may not be. At least, I mean. Where where are you counting the begin The beginning of the end could have been five and seven. True. So depend like how quickly the end comes, I think depends on if you hire an athletic director soon, if the athletic director wants to make a statement immediately, you know, those type of things, he could still end up playing out the season because you're already paying him. You know, do you, do you want to make a change when you don't have an athletic director to be searching for someone? I don't know if that's necessarily the thing. I think the beginning of the end going five and seven was the start of it. You wanted to make changes, but losing to BYU showed that those changes haven't fully materialized. But do you bounce back? You know, if they can bounce back, then I think you say that's a you know it's kind of a fluke, and you try to take it separately the five and seven season, and then losing to BYU, take them separately instead of oh this is just a continuation of last year type of thing. So it depends on how they play here. I, I don't know. That's a tough one to answer. So what's your answer? I gave you both answers. <laughs> <laughs> you cheater. Well, I'm going to have a one B to this. Oh, Clay no. Helton said. Uh, that this team reminded him of the 2016 team who, after they lost to Utah, everyone said that, oh, this is a special team. We felt different in this game, and then they ran the table. Granted, it was easier schedule back then, but Clay Heldon said that he felt the same thing with this team in 2019. Do you agree with him that this team is special and can run the table like the 2016 team did? It, it's going to be – I don't think so. I don't agree with that statement because of the schedule of the next three games. If they were spaced out, maybe – but the fact that you have these three games and you're coming off a lot, it's just mm, it's it's a kind of a murderer's row of what you see in college football. Like even in the SEC, I know everyone champions the SEC as being the best football, but even there, you don't play three type of three top fifteen opponents three weeks in a row. Usually, if it is, it's a false top fifteen a team. Like when Mississippi State's ever ranked in the top fifteen, you're just like, why is Mississippi State up here? Oh, they won two games with Dak Prescott. They're number one in the country. What? Why is why are they number one in the what? That doesn't make any sense. They're not true number ones, and then you see them lose four games by the end of the year. So it just doesn't happen where you have three teams that everyone thinks are top 15 teams in the country lined up back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. It's a kind of a murderer's row, especially when you're coming off a, a loss to a BYU team. You're going to have to bounce back. You have to bounce back in a big way. So I don't think it happens. I think what they're thinking and what where they could be correct, Keaton Slovis showed some positive signs, and if he gets over those mistakes – you say we got our quarterback, and that's what they—that was the big thing coming out of the Utah game—is they felt like okay, we lost this game, but we got our quarterback now. 
And maybe they feel like that with Slovis, that, hey, even though he's a freshman, we think he can do a lot of good things. We just got to get over this little hurdle that you know he had in this past game of not reading the coverages and trying to do a little bit too much. And I think that was just the game speeding up on him. That happens with every freshman, every position. It happens. But how do you react to it? I think that, that Slovis has shown some moxie a little bit in the past a couple of games that makes you think that, hey, maybe he'll bounce back and you know we've got a quarterback that can lead us. I'm returning to the heat with agree to screen num- statement number two. We have seen all we need to know from a Clay Helton coach team. I don't. I think you're relating this back to my Utah statement from last year. Are you not? Maybe. <laughs> I actually wasn't, but it sounds exactly like what you tweeted. So last year, against after they were losing to Utah, I said, you know, we've seen all we need to know. You know that this team cannot win a national championship as it is currently constructed. Coaching staff. Coaching staff was just constructed. So, you know, I don't think I feel the same. I don't feel to that extent. You know, I don't know that we know exactly. I think that Graham Harrell is a big upgrade, an offensive coordinator. I think on defensive line, the DBs, coaches, you know, the coaching staff feels like they made some big upgrades there, and it seems like you're getting more production from some players on that side, uh, on the defensive side there. So I think they feel like the coaching staff is, is farther along than it was last year. So I don't know that I'll make the same statement that I made then, but there's three games coming up that can tell you a lot. Not only just how the team plays, but how they make adjustments, how they're prepared for each of these games, because these are huge games, and you come into one you're not prepared, like you know the Notre Dame game a couple years ago where they just got blown out, nothing worked, Notre Dame was all over everything. If that's the way it looks in one of these games, then maybe that statement comes up, but I'm going to disagree as of now. Interesting, okay. Now for the third statement, I have to put a little context. So after the Saturday loss to BYU, the boards kind of, popped up conspiracy theories that Clay Helton was meddling in the play calling. Now, we've heard different things, but I just want to ask you, Shotgun, the statement is it doesn't matter if Clay Helton is meddling in USC's offensive play calling. I disagree. You know, if you're going to be an air raid team, it's a philosophy. It's it's a, you know, kind of a way of life. You know, if you're going to be vegan, you can't still eat bacon on Fridays. You know, it's that's just not the way it works. If you're going to be going and you want the health benefits of being vegan and all that stuff, then you got to go full into it. You can't just be like, well, I'm vegan. Can I get some bacon with it? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. That's And that's kind of what, you know, if you're meddling in the play calling of, you know, if you change your system and go with Air Raid and you go suddenly, you know what, let's throw some pistol in there. We did see some pistol we in there. We did see some pistol. And what was curious is, when Clay Helton was asked after the Fresno State game, I believe it was, about the kneel downs, he said, we run everything, you know, we run all, everything in shotgun. And then the last two games, we've seen a little bit of pistol. Like, did they just suddenly throw that in there? Was that part of the game plan? You know, how much pistol is normally used in, a, in an air raid? I don't know exactly. Um, I would have to look back at North Texas to see if Mason Fine was ever in the pistol. I don't know the exact answer to that. But if you're going to have a philosophy, if you're going to, you got to go all in. Can't just put your toe in the water and say, yeah, we're air raid. We're, we're air raid whatever we can do to gain a yard here. Yeah. You got to go full, full blown. That means if you're fourth and one, you want to, th- you got to throw the ball, you throw the ball. You know, those are the type of things you, why are we, why do we never have a fullback? You stop using that like three offenses ago, those type of things. Like you can't just like, well, they're clamoring for a fullback. So let's throw one in just for these, like these three special plays. No, go, you got to go all in. Yep. Now the final agree, disagree the Trojans will lose their next three games on the schedule. I'm going to disagree. Oh, okay. I think they get at least one. 
I thought they were beat Washington on the road for some reason for like six months now. Weird. Okay. I don't know why. I could be completely wrong, obviously. Um, but I, I think I'm just going to take the odds on that one that they'll win one of those three games. Okay. Preseason, when I still thought JT was at the helm, I thought they would lose the next three games. Utah, UW, and Notre Dame. I thought they would win at Washington the whole time for some reason. Weird. We'll see if the shotgun gut is <laughs> correct. Um, but before we move on to questions, speaking of guts, I'm adopting this segment every week now. Picking your brain, shotgun. <laughs> because I just, I got to talk about this team somehow. Because What, what does that have to do with my gut? Well, it has to do with your gut because we've been talking about our guts in this segment each week about how we're taking in what this USC team is. Like, what are we taking away from these games? Whatever. I'm making it work, Chuck, and <laughs> let it happen, okay? So after the Fresno State game, I said, I keep getting lulled into this team and their, their promise because of the talent. And then I said, but the big if is this coaching staff. And whether or not they can do something with the talent. And I think I have to come back to it. I know Stanford, I was like, oh, positive. Yeah, okay. I'm coming back to, I got lulled in again. Stanford lulled me back in. And then the BYU game was the if. You know, I think USC got outcoached. I just think it was not a good showing. The team didn't come in fired up, ready to play in a day game in a tough atmosphere. So I just... uh, it's weird to me how fast I change my opinion back from I think this is going downhill and it will go downhill for the rest of the season. Am I wrong in that? Um, you're not wrong. I think the, the ultimate question comes down to am I trusting the coaching staff or am I trusting the talent? Because obviously USC has a ton of talent. Obviously there's question marks with the coaching staff. And that's, that's the, biggest, the biggest issue there is whether you want it, which side you want to trust there. Do the coaches do enough to get out of the way or do they do enough to get in the way, you know, of the talent? Let the talent play or do you try to do you overcoach it or you, you know, you're just unprepared enough? And that, that's a that's a question mark with this group, especially after the way they lost some of the games last year. They were all they were tight games. Those are games USC should win just because their talent should win out in those type of games. You shouldn't be held at uh, held scoreless by Cal like that, you know, for the rest of the game after the first couple of drives of it. So, you know, I think that that's your big question there. I think that there's talent enough on this team that they can win all three of these games. They're fully capable of winning all three. But what they can do and what they actually do are two separate things. True. With this staff. That's the, my point. And the other thing is I think they can easily bounce back and have a great game this week and suddenly you're, you're swing right back around. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because like, because <laughs> the mistakes they had last game, if you don't turn the ball over, and the, the bigger issue and bigger concern is the continued issues on defense. Yeah. Not tackling not defending the edge well, and having issues with, with quarterbacks that can move around the pocket and move outside the pocket. You know, those have been issues all three games to an extent in, in all three. So how you may, are you making any adjustments there? Or is it just going to be a year-long thing? That's an issue for us. What do we do to overcome it? That is much bigger concern than, hey, he, the freshman quarterback turned the ball over three times. I think he'll get better. I think he's got the the – the wherewithal to learn from his mistakes, the moxie there. I just love using the word moxie for quarterbacks. Yeah, moxie count over here. Yeah, because Johnny Moxon. Sure. From Varsity Blues. You don't know any movies. Never it's mind. It's true. <laughs> anyway, but I think that he can bounce back, and I think that the offense has talent around him to, to help him succeed. And I don't think the offense line was terrible. They weren't good, but I don't think they were terrible in that game, which gives me a little bit more confidence in them, in them than ever last season. 
and that's where I'm like, am I overreacting? Like, am I re- overreacting to the BYU loss? Are there factors that might sway it back into USC's favor later on in the season? I don't know. And so I guess this is the segment now where I just go, I don't know. And then we move <laughs> on to questions. <laughs> I mean, you can do it that way if you, if you prefer. Hey, it's my show. I do what I want. That's true. Let's move on to questions then. First up, we got a tweet from Dave who says, is it technique or ability that caused Brett Nealon to get abused against BYU? Is this something that can be fixed or should we be looking at D-Ditch? So an interesting thing, Andrew Voorhees being out, I found out that Justin D-Ditch was actually playing, was practicing at guard last week, which was very interesting to me because if I'm constructing a line, just looking at the body types, I'm putting D-Ditch inside and Nealon at guard if, if you're putting D-Ditch into the game. If you have a guard go down or something, then I would do that because he's a smaller guy. You know, your, your centers are usually a smaller. I think Nealon is big enough to play guard, whereas Didich, I don't know if that's the case. But I was told that, no, they prefer Nealon at center because of the way he's making calls, that he's doing a lot of pre-snap things. I just think it was a very tough matchup for him. You know, that, that head-on nose tackle in the first time probably that he's faced that. Now, remember, he, he didn't play a ton of center in high school, actually. Only his, fi- his senior year was he really a center, so it, it hasn't been a ton of practice practice going up against that and that's a kind of a, a different technique there where you got to snap the ball you got to whip your head back up all in the same motion or you have to you know have a you know uh, a blind snap basically so I just think he didn't handle that well Tonga's really strong it's partly it's a little bit of technique a little bit of ability you know you got to get stronger but also you just got to stay low enough I think Tonga was doing an incredible job of shooting off the ball and just having you know coming off the ball really fast and that makes allows him to be you know low man wins when you come to offensive line, defensive line play, and he was able to shoot off the ball and get into Nealon before Nealon could have a chance to do the same to him. So I think it was, it was partially that. I'm curious, like I said, we'll see this week if Utah kind of switches up their defensive fronts to, to try to take advantage of that matchup as well. But I think, I think Nealon will do much better the next time he faces a, a, a true nose tackle head up over him. Interesting. Okay. Uh, we got a tweet from Hokey Pokey who says, Using USC's players in current offense, what play would you call for third and two, down by four in the fourth quarter on the 50-yard line? It depends on what front you're facing. You know, this is a very coach answer, but if, if it's the BYU game, then I love that power play that we're running. It was downhill. You can run it with Vi. You can run it with Step. You can run it with Carr even if you want because he's patient enough to wait on the, on the blocks. Um, I, I think that I'm going with a running play. On, on third and two because if I'm down by four in the fourth quarter, I, I assume it's four down territory. So if I want to then throw it on, four, on fourth down, that's perfectly fine to me. So I, I think that I'm running it on third and two and taking my chances. I think we can power through a, a defensive line. As long as we get our blocks up front, we'll be good. We'll pick up two yards, and then we'll keep the drive uh, rolling. Well, he also says, what about the same scenario, but it's fourth and ten? Now we're down by four, 50-yard line, fourth and ten. I'm running four verticals. Because I like the versatility of the play. I think you can have, you know, you can tell, say, hey, we're running four verts, but let's be cautious of getting to the sticks and then seeing if there's some, some open area there to, to run it to. Uh, maybe even, you know, you send, you do four verts and maybe you send the running back out in motion and then send them across the formation. So you have someone going shallow at you know at eight to ten yards that's going across the formation. So if I'm getting man coverage, then I think my running back can beat somebody there. If I'm getting zone coverage, then he's forcing and giving them, giving them another look. Um, so there's some different things you can do. Obviously, fourth and ten is never a situation you want to be in. Um, but if you have the receivers that USC has, the thing with four verts is if you get in trouble, just throw it up and give somebody a chance. Yeah, but I hokey pokey. I would like more details. 
Who am I facing? Where am I facing them? Am I on, am I the offensive coordinator? Am I on the field? Give me some details because I want. If you're gonna ask me specific questions, I want specific. Well, you're you're details. calling a play, aren't you? The offensive coordinator. If you're calling the play, I could be the head coach. <laughs> get out of my get out of my play calls here, <laughs> Keely. I'm trying to like make some calls. Hey, shotgun, we we should run the ball here. <laughs> um, I thought this question was addressing the overtime, but it wasn't play calling so this is where i'm gonna insert this right now shotgun what did you think about the overtime play calls i was not a big fan of usc's offensive play calls because you went to something you hadn't been having success with you went to two tight ends the first two play you hadn't gone with two tight ends since the you know second drive of the game or at least the first quarter Uh, and then you go with the pistol formation on second down that's confusing to me because the first team offense has only run the pistol formation once, and that was earlier in the game, only one single play. So I just unless you got a special trick play, it was just a different look. Now, I understand you want to give vary your looks for the defense, and sometimes it's just eye candy to, to try to throw the defense off, but in such a critical moment, and especially when you know that a touchdown wins it, I'm not trying to trick anybody. I'm just going at them using what's worked well, which is that power play, you know, using some of those things that, that you've had success with. I didn't really like the spacing call on third down either because yeah. especially the defense that they're running, you're basically running everybody at the same level, at the same depth. Now, Tyler Vaughn's on watching a replay. He did he was going long. But if you're going to run somebody long, I want it to be an inside guy so that you push back guys. So we saw this yeah. on different plays where, where an inside receiver will run a deeper pattern, and it forces those – those linebackers in the middle to back up a little bit more. And you saw a couple times where Michael Pittman would wrap around a defender and come back to the ball and make catches. You could have run something like that, which you'd had success with a couple other times earlier in the game. I didn't really like the, the spacing call just because, like I said, everyone's at the same depth, and it's basically the same depth that you're, you're trying to get to the sticks, and all their defenders were there. They had yep. 10 guys uh, within you know between the line of scrimmage and the first down marker, so I didn't really like it. Yeah, for that exact reason, I didn't like it either. But also just the sequences, because Graham Harrell had said that they had taken pressure off of Keaton after the second interception. They wanted to run the ball more. So you set up two handoffs, and then obviously on third down, it's going to be a throw. You're going to have to throw the ball. And that's something that Keaton was struggling with, throwing it into tight spaces. And you're going to call a a play where he's going to have an opportunity to throw into a a tight space and you haven't really trusted him to do that the rest of the game after that second interception. Why are you doing that in a critical play where that was the last thing you needed him to do? And so I just didn't like even giving him the opportunity to lose the game for you in that way. Which is interesting because they had third and 10 before Chase McGrath kicks the the 52-yarder to tie the game. They had third and 10. They decided to run the ball with Stephen Carr. Now he picks up seven or eight yards. There's a penalty flag, so it ends up being they get a second chance at it, and it's third and five then. Um, but I thought it was interesting that it was third and ten you decided to run the ball. But then when it was third and five in that, you know, the next play, they try to throw it to Michael Pittman. You know, and the same thing in overtime, it's third and six, you decide to throw it. Whereas if it was third and ten, would you have run it and just kicked the field goal? You know, those those are kind of interesting, like when they're choosing to be aggressive. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. I never have a problem with being aggressive. I, I always want coaches to be more aggressive. That's usually my mindset. Um, but I think that choosing when to be aggressive is kind of interesting there. And the thing is that that first down play, there was a hole. The, the, there was a area to get a big gain running the ball. But Josh Follow basically got the the linebacker came in and basically tackled Josh Follow at the legs. He cut the block, and which was a great job by the linebacker, and it 
pushed everybody back into into Vi, and therefore he got tackled behind the line of scrimmage, and you lose a couple yards. Yeah. So hindsight always changes your mind, but Graham Harrell said he wouldn't change anything in hindsight, so huh. confident there. Uh, let's go to a tweet from Full of Nopes. He says, "Will Utah mimic BYU's defense? If so, what's the counter?" I mean, if they do the same thing, then you do what you were doing in the second half, which is running some power plays. They were able to get their guards out on the linebackers by pulling Jalen McKenzie around, by getting Elijah Vera Tucker to the second level. You just got to be more consistent with the blocks if that if they come out with three men. Now, I don't think that Utah is going to do that. No, I think they're going to have because they have four, really, they have six really good linemen. Yeah. but they have they usually use a four man front, so it's going to be a little bit different there, but you got to run the ball. USC's got to be able to run the ball, and that's going to be on the offense line. They have to do a better job of holding their blocks. They were able to get some blocks, and like I said, they were getting some push a little bit. There wasn't a ton of, of plays in the backfield destroying everything like we saw a ton last year where it's just free runners and stuff. But they have to be more consistent with their blocks, which means getting your hat on the right side, you know, hat placement as they call it, putting putting your face mask on the right, the correct shoulder of the defender, uh, depending on which way the run is going and stuff like that. Yeah, so Utah's defense runs a four-two-five, and so and more man. And so I'm curious if like if you're seeing more man, more nickel, and that's something you see a lot in practice. Does that make you more comfortable? I think so. Yeah. Anytime that you, you know, it's like a team when they face a triple option team. You know, when you go up against formerly Georgia Southern or like the teams that are facing the uh, uh, the service academies, Air Force beats Colorado. You know, you, you see Navy in games, you see Army in games because it's an offense you don't ever see, and yep. you're trying to, especially if you face a team like that in the middle of the season. You know, you're trying to jam. You know, uh, uh, basically a learning a completely new defense or stopping a completely new offense in a week or in two practices, basically. Whereas if you, you're in the Pac-12 and everybody kind of runs a spread and air raid style, it's like, okay, well, this is the same as last week and last week and last So it's a lot different when it's, there's a lot of consistency versus if it's completely different and it's off the wall. Yeah, without a doubt. PC fan said, SC lost to a team that were favored to win by only four points. Why does everyone, including the Peristyle team, act like it's the end of the world? Because they didn't just lose to a team that they were favored to win by four points. They also went five and seven last year. So it all accumulates together. You know, it's not just what have you done for me lately. It's what have you done for me overall at the same time. And it depends on what has been lately. You know, you can look back at the Pac-12 championship and add that in. And it could be, that could be your argument. And, you know, going to the Rose Bowl, winning that. But that was, that was three or four years ago. You know, what have you done in the last season? What have you done in the last year and a half? You know, you go on the road, you know, you have high expectations, and you come out a little bit flat, and you, you don't make enough plays after that first drive on offense. Let's go to a tweet from Rechan18. He says, why does Stephen Carr not receive the touches he deserves? It's ridiculous that he only receives six carries a game. So it's interesting. There's people that are like, Stephen Carr was so tentative, and he didn't run hard in this game. And there's people like, hey, he's got to get more touches. Why are we not? It, it's I mean, this is part of when you have an air raid offense and your running backs, I mean, what was it, 21 touches, I think it was, in the Stanford game. So there's just not a lot of touches to go around. And a guy like Stephen Carr is a home run threat. You know, he has the opportunity to make guys miss, and then he's shown some speed around the edge, you know, in that Stanford game that shows, hey, the burst is back, and he can make some, some big things happen. 
But you got to remember, he's not just receiving six carries a game. He's also getting three to four. I think he's averaging probably four catches a game right now. Um, so he's getting up to 10. The question is, what is your split going to be with your top two running backs? We talked about this previously when people were clamoring for, for more marquee step is, you know, where do you take stuff away? Is it going to be 60-30-10? Is it going to be 60-40? Are you going 50-50? Are you going 50-30-20? You know, if you're going to use three guys, then it makes it hard to get everybody and get everybody in the rhythm. I don't, I'm not really big on the whole rhythm thing as a, as for running backs and stuff. I think you just got to be able to see a defense and, and be able to see a hole and, and burst through a hole type of thing. Now, I understand where that comes from. If you see things more and more, you get more comfortable with where the de- defense is going to be and how to avoid them. But you know that, that's all the things you have to factor in as you're trying to figure out who to give touches to, who should be in the game. Can but can you do the other things? Can you block? Can you catch the ball when we do throw it to you? You know, are you going to be a decoy? You're going to run hard. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Besides, what do you do when the ball is actually in your hand? And and part of it is that too. Do you hold on to the ball? Do you fumble? Do you you know are you running with the ball loose and you just haven't given up a fumble yet? You know, there's there's a lot of things, a lot of factors that go into it. I would like Stephen Carr to get a couple more touches, but I would have liked to have seen them throw some more flare passes. You know, yeah. the, the, the way they were playing, it became a last resort to check it down, whereas I would have been attacking with that. You know, use some, you know, do some screens and stuff where you're just flaring the ball out to them, using the receivers to block some guys. There were some other things they could have done in that game that, that they didn't necessarily do that I maybe would have called if I was the OC. OC shotgun. But maybe I would have overruled you as head coach Keely. Figures. <laughs> Figures. DJ sent us a tweet saying, "With all the issues that Coach Baxter has had on special teams, why hasn't he been? Why hasn't he been replaced? I don't get it. He was once a good coach and then has gone sideways ever since Helton was brought on board." It's interesting with the special teams is they're a very up and down unit. It's not like it's constant, like oh my gosh, they don't ever do anything right. It's just they do some things. And you're just like, what in the world are you doing? And then the other times you're like, Valus Jones touchdown return. Austin Jackson blocks a field goal, you know, 52 yard field goal. They do some things really well. It's just they don't consistency. The consistency is not there. They're not consistently doing it over and over. You know, I think that's the biggest issue with that group. And that's, I think that's the biggest issue with this team as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, that's just, it's a part of the culture right now at USC is that, hey, we're really good at times. Yeah, that's, that's a good call by you. Of course it is, because I made the call. <sighs> Oh, wow. Back to that. I didn't even mean to do that. Uh, But interesting note on special teams that you noticed, Shotgun, about missing Liam Jimmins and how that affected it. Yeah, they didn't have Liam Jimmins, which everybody, you know, if you're thinking about that, you're like, oh, whatever. That's a backup offensive lineman. They haven't really rotated any offensive linemen outside of Voorhees anyways. But it played an impact because Liam Jimmins is on several of the special teams. He's a he was a defensive guy. Now he's an offensive lineman. He he moves really well for a big guy, and he's a guy that blocks for them on those kickoff returns. Their kickoff returns were really bad this game, and I think that played a big impact because he's one of the back blockers right in front of the returners, and they had Brandon Peely there instead of him. And Brandon Peely is a guy who I love watching him play. I love his uh, his infectious energy, but he's not a blocker. He's a guy that wants to run through people. So you now you're asking him to block. He hasn't blocked. The only time he blocks really is on a field goal block when he's he's pushing through the pile to create a little bit more space for a guy like Austin Jackson to jump up higher. So he doesn't really, you know, he's not a true blocker. And trying to get him out in space and blocking, I didn't really like that, you know, that substitution there. Whereas if you have Liam Jimmins, obviously you don't have to make, you know, put anyone else in. You know, Brandon Peely's a pretty versatile guy because of his athleticism, but he struggled trying to block there. And they've had some issues in front where a guy like Liam Jimmins, he's done a really good job. Interesting note by you there. 
Uh, we got a tweet from Was406 who says, if USC ends up with an impressive winning record at the end of the season, would fans still talk about getting rid of Clay Helton? Just curious. I mean, it depends on what's impressive. You know, and what is impressive to each person is, you know, is a personal thing. Going to the Rose Bowl and winning the Rose Bowl, that's impressive. But is going to a Cotton Bowl and losing to Ohio State, was that impressive? That if you're if you're at Washington State or you're at, you know, if you're at Arizona and they did that, you'd be like, it's a great season. Amazing. Kevin Sumlin, you get an extension. You're at USC, it's like, why are we not in the Rose Bowl? Why have we not been in the college football playoff yet? Yep. You know, that is our tradition, that is our expectation. The expectation sets whether something is impressive or not. And that's hard to say. That's an individual, you know, for each person and what's impressive to them. Uh, if they're 11 and two and they win a Pac-12 title, then I think you'll hear less of it. And also it depends on the athletic director and what they say. There's just a lot of things that go into that question. A lot I of think. variables, yeah. yeah. I just think I'm curious, like, if there were to be somehow some impressive run, how many diehard Clay needs to go people would still stick there and who would just get quiet on that opinion? I think that you're still going to have a lot of people because even when USC won the Rose Bowl, there were plenty of people that said, hey, Clay Helton's still not the guy. He needs to go. This is, you know, they went on this run, but, you know, they're never going to win a national championship. And that becomes a question. You know, is Clay Helton good enough to get you 11 or 12 wins, but not good enough to get you to that national championship? You know, is he like a Mark Richt at Georgia? You know, would get them several times into – you know, big bowl games and stuff, but never could go undefeated and get that national championship. And now Kirby Smart's in the college football playoff every time. So it's a difference of, okay, how far can you take the talent that we can get to this school? And I think there's still going to be people, unless they went out, unless they went out, that I still think there would be people that that would say, Clay Helton's not the guy to take us all the way. And I also think the million dollar question is, what does this administration want from the football program? Yeah, definitely that. I mean, if you're not going to fully invest then I, you can't expect you know the results that they've had in the past. If you're fine with nine and ten win seasons, eight, nine, ten, then Clay Hilton's your guy, and the people who make the decisions will keep him. So it's interesting to see how that all plays out. While we're on the topic of Clay Hilton, let's go to a voicemail we got. Now we actually got two voicemails about this topic. Daniel, you sent us a very long voicemail. Can't put it in. Please keep it shorter if you could. But let's go to this voicemail. Hey guys, thanks for taking the call. Um, looking ahead at the games we got on the slate, looks like there might be a, a significant chance that our team is two and four. Um, wondering in the event that uh, they decide to cut Clay, who would be the coach that they would replace as uh, interim head coach? Who do you guys think would be the replacement coach in the event that Clay gets cut in the middle of the season? Also, a follow-up question to that, I know a lot of fans have sort of been clamoring and and knocking up the wall to have Urban Meyer be the next coach of our team, which I would certainly be excited about having a winner. But I wonder if given – or do you guys expect that the controversy that has surrounded the school from, you know, our past AD to FBI scandals, does the fact that Urban has sort of been – clouded with controversy for much of the the last several years in his coaching career affect the likelihood that USC would go that direction in the event that he's interested. I know he may not even be interested, but in the event that he was interested, would that affect uh, the new president's line of decisioning? So appreciate you answering those questions, and um, thanks, as always, for giving us the platform to ask, and fight on. 
So let's go to Urban Meyer first. You know, I think there would be some issues there because of everything else that has gone around, gone on around USC's campus, and the fact that there has been different scandals, and the fact that wherever Urban Meyer touches, usually there follows some scandal afterwards. So if you want to blame him for that, you can. If you don't, you don't want to. You just want to talk about wins on the field. You can do that too. But it's still something that is there, and something that has been an issue with USC around the campus with there being scandal and a bunch of other places. So I think it would make it that much more difficult, but it depends on an athletic director. If you, if somehow USC goes and hires Gene Smith, who has a great relationship with Urban Meyer, then the chances are much better. But the directive that is given from the president could still be the same that, Hey, we want somebody who's clean and doesn't have any issues, but we want a winner. You know, those, Though it just depends on what the president wants and what their hire at athletic director director wants. I know what USC fans want. Yep. It actually isn't Urban Meyer. You know what it is to win. Sure. They yeah. want to win, whether it's Urban Meyer or anybody else. They just think Urban Meyer gives them the best chance because he's won in a couple places. But that's a five year plan because you expect he's going to get tired of of coaching again because that's what happens. He gets about five years in. He's having health issues or. Tired of being away from his family, and he cuts ties. Now, does that leave your program in a better place than it was? At Florida, it did not. At Ohio State, I think it did. You know, Ohio State's now back on the map. They're the the place to go in the Big Ten, whereas Florida has struggled to win at all since he's left. So it's hard to say until we know what the athletic director hire is and then what kind of is the directive handed down. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if we've heard that President Folt means business, and so what does she want for a head coach? I'm very curious about that, and and I think the athletic director, like you said, really dictates things. So right now it's kind of wait and see, but I think we've said it before. I know the voice while we didn't play was like, oh, I know Keeley and Shotgun doesn't like Urban Meyer, but like I think it's just it from my perspective, it's just not a smart move in the sense that you're trying to get away from people who could be potentially messy. You're t- trying to get away from the FBI coming to your door all the time. True. Not saying that Urban Meyer could bring that again, but... There were police detectives because of his his hire as the, the receiver's coach, so there were officers of the law there yes. at Ohio State as well. So, yes, it's followed him. And then there were several incidents at Florida with Aaron Hernandez and other players that involved the law again. Now, that's not to say that any coach gets away from that because USC has had that under Clay Helton. And everybody talks about Clay Helton being a good guy and everything, but there's been several off-field incidents at USC at the same time. So it's a hard line to, you know, when you have 105 18 to 22-year-olds not having anyone get in any trouble. So it's difficult to do, but how much of a concern are your, your past grievances and the past grievances of your teams? And I think that would affect the – Urban Meyer being hired for a position that's not even open. Yep, which we broke our rule. We don't like talking about head coaching positions if they're not open. I also just hate hypothetical situations. But since we're going into the other one, the other side of it, if he was fired, it would be the interim coach. Let's just skip that and say if Clay Helton gets ejected from a game, sure, who takes over as head coach? I would say Mike Jinks. Former head coach. He's in everybody's ear. You can see it on the TV broadcast on the sideline. See, I would know. I, I said Johnny Nansen before when we've discussed this. It's not Johnny Nansen. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think it's Jinx. What was that? <laughs> I think it's Jinx because Johnny Nansen is way too emotional on the sideline, 
And he doesn't have any voice by the third quarter. So, <laughs> it, Johnny Nansen has better things to do. <laughs> yeah, he's got he's got to yell about tight ends. Exactly, covering the tight ends. Cover the tight ends. <laughs> we heard that a lot at the BYU game. It was game. dead silent in overtime, and that's all you heard. It's very Just true. Johnny Nansen screaming that. Uh, but let's move on to a tweet from Mike Fisher, who said, "What's the best new food that you found at the Coliseum?" I'm trying to be positive about the season, but right now I need another thing to look forward to about going to games. I've seen a lot of good food as I walk in. I've never actually gotten any but of the I don't food. ever get any of the, the I stuff. I like I usually just don't eat during the game if there's not some pregame meal. Like that's what happened in the Stanford game. They had something I wasn't eating and I was like, Oh, I'll go back out to the concession stand and get something and then you know, start working and you get to the end of the game, you're like, It's been twelve hours since I've eaten, I probably should eat. For some reason my mind can't justify stadium food prices if I'm working in the game. Also true, because we do get a free media meal. It's not always something we, that we desire you know individually so you know sometimes you don't want to eat the media meal so especially in basketball galen centers media meals are terrible oh shade 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 <laughs> but to give credit to byu they had tucanos which was a brazilian uh meat where they where you order meat into it was delicious meat buffet I guess. turkey wrap bacon no it was really good other stuff of that type it was delicious very good yeah I was, to BYU. I was texting a couple of coaches that i know uh at byu and asking for food recommendations since i was going to be there three nights and uh tucanos was one of the places and then boom in the press box. Out great plus they had zaxby's in new provo couldn't believe it he was very excited about that behind the curtain <laughs> moving on lawrence sent us a tweet why can't we have nice things hashtag fight on <laughs> it happens lawrence uh sports there, there, there were those nice things that was called the early aughts mid aughts true and the Stanford game. You know, that that guy named Reggie Bush, that was a really nice thing to have. Very true. <laughs> For a small window of time. <laughs> Good comeback, Shotgun. Let's go to our final question. It's from Jeff, the math teacher, who sent us an email saying, Hi, Family Feud Pod. Thanks for all you do. He has a question that says, What's the over-under on how many games Keenan Slows will have to start before the broadcasters don't say the word Kurt Warner at least half a dozen times? <laughs> Maybe the seventh game of the season? So the thing is... It's not often that you get the the same broadcast team. Now, BYU got it for the Tennessee game and the USC. You know, Greg McElroy, Tom Luganbill, that group were, were at both games. But usually it's a talking point because, hey, I haven't seen this guy. You know, if Roxy Bernstein calls the next game, he hasn't seen USC play. So that's a talking point for him as a broadcaster. You know, it, it just depends on the, the person and their notes for the game. They're like, yeah, I want to get to that. That's an interesting point. So you're going to hear it over and over until you get some people that have worked the same, you know, have worked on a USC game throughout the season. And then it'll be only three to four times instead of instead of half a dozen. It just happens. Broadcasters just say things. <laughs> Sometimes you get stuck on a comment and then, you know, a couple plays will play into that and it makes you sound better. That, hey, I talked about this early in the game and now look, it's happening. True. I'm sure people are listening to the podcast and going, you guys say the same things over and over again, too. <laughs> so it happens. It happens to the best of us. But that's going to wrap it up. Oh, wait, Obviously, no, it's not. Because we are the best. Oh, yes, of course. No, just kidding. <laughs> but that that's not actually going to wrap it up just yet. we got a new prediction, Chuck. What are you feeling for this game? Um, I'm feeling that I don't like Friday night games, but I'm interested to see what I'm going to do on Saturday and Sunday. Woohoo! It's so lame when USC has Friday night games because people are like, Keely, what are you going to do with your Saturday? And I'm like, Watch more college football. <laughs> it's kind of lame. Is that your friends? are like, are you going to come out and hang out? No, I want to watch more games. I, I don't actually get to do this on Saturdays. That's the thing. Is like, I like watching games because like, people 
ask me questions about the overall college football seasons and like years that I've been working covering USC and I have no memory like you can ask me like what happened in the walk-on in the third game of the season and I'll know for USC but I don't know really what's happening with the rest of the college football world because we're working during the games and yeah. I like, try to catch up but you can't watch them unless there's seven seven thirty games like I usually will be able to watch the first you know first round of games and the first half of the the three thirty games but then after that, like you, I have no, I never see any Pac-12 games. Yep. At the time they're played, unless mm-hmm. they're on a Thursday or Friday, you know, I don't ever see on a Saturday. I see any other Pac-12 games. I'll see a score update. Occasionally there'll be a, uh, a lightning delay, and Cal and Washington will be going till 4:22 a.m. Eastern time. True, that was fun. Yeah, um, so I'll be watching games. That's what I. That's my prediction for this weekend: watching games on Saturday. I'm excited for another. Oh wait, I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> my goodness, shotgun. What are you predicting for this matchup on that Friday? I'm going to be watching games Shotgun. on Saturday. <laughs> Shotgun. Why do you always ask me predictions? I hate predictions. I'm terrible at predictions. It's part I of the game. I don't like being terrible at stuff. Part of the game. <sighs> I said 28-24. Who's winning? Utah. Yeah. But I'm going with the spread. I'm staying with Vegas. There you go. But if you if USC wins the turnover battle, that's when, when they'll have a chance. See, I'm going 28-10 Utah. I just don't think this is USC's key weaknesses against Utah's key strengths. I don't think USC can get it done, and I just think this is a loss in the Coliseum. Could be, but there's the curse of the Coliseum on Utah. True. You got to cross your fingers and hope for the curse if you're a USC fan. <laughs> if you play defense and you create some turnovers, and it turns things really quickly. And that curse of the Coliseum becomes something that hangs over their head on the other sideline. The key word, play defense. You can give up 80 yards, but then if you can create a turnover at the red zone, and if you can get a Dory to return it for a touchdown, that helps. Just bring a Dory back. Yeah. Then I'll nice. change my prediction. <laughs> Alrighty, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the Family Feud Podcast. Thank you guys so much for your questions, your voicemails. We appreciate you guys. That's Shotgun. I'm Keely. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.